0: Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we learn about the physics of explosions with Sam Rigby, who's a structural engineer at the UK's University of Sheffield. His research on blast and impact engineering focuses on protecting people, buildings, and vehicles from explosions. Here's Sam in conversation with Physics World's James Dacey.
1: Okay, Sam, well, thanks for joining the podcast today.
2: Thanks, James. Thanks for having me on.
1: So how did you first get into studying explosions? Was it something you fell into? Or did you always have a fascination with understanding how things blew up?
2: Yeah, so I think growing up, I was always interested in the built environment. I was always interested in uh, kind of civil and structural engineering in general. Um, so going to university to study that was quite a quite an obvious career path for me. Um, but it, it was only really sort of midway through my undergraduate when I discovered this this kind of love for uh, for blast and impact engineering. The the head of our group, Professor Andy Tyus, he gave a lecture uh on structural collapse and famous famous case studies of structural collapse and the one in particular uh, that's that stuck in my head was the the hyatt regency walkway collapse uh, in kansas city in, in 1981 um, it was kind of a last last minute design choice that, that the engineer changed and then it led to uh, quite a catastrophic structural failure and it felt like a turning point to me it felt like that was the point where i was like oh you know I realized that engineering wasn't this exact science it was mm-hmm. it was effectively you know physics informed trial and error, and that kind of really awoken a passion in me for studying what happens when things uh, don't behave as, as as expected
1: so with with your research I know at the cutting edge now of lots of physics and engineering there's lots and lots of modeling on computers, but uh, I'm sure there's some of that as well with you, but you also have a real world lab where you you, you blow things up essentially and study how that, what happens, the results of that. So, in the case of explosions, why is it so important to also have these these real world experiments?
2: Yeah, as you, as you said, we the the way that we've made our name is is generally from experimental work. So, as a as a research group, we do some modeling, we do some analytical work, but most of what we do is is by designing uh, these bespoke experimental apparatus in our in our. Test site out in Buxton. Um, it feels like I've never really grown up. Uh, you know, as, as a job, I get to take things out into a field and blow them up. But the the reason why the reason why it's so important to do this sort of work for blast, in terms of a purely uh, sort of technical and, and, and physics perspective, it's because blast itself is such a, an aggressive environment. It's such an extreme physical process that. Up until very recently we 've not had much of an informed view of, of what 's going on um, because it 's so hard to measure um, the sorts of magnitudes of loading that we talk about are alien even to civil engineers they 're the sorts of loads that uh, that buildings just aren 't subjected to. Um, those loads are a- applied and removed in fractions of a second you know, fractions of a, of a millisecond sometimes um, so our our understanding of blast isn't as sophisticated as a lot of other engineering fields, things like earthquake, things like flooding. Um, They're they're very uh, far along in terms of their understanding. Um, So our work is is trying to address that. It's um, trying to come up with new and novel ways of measuring things that haven't previously been measurable.
1: And you have um, a, a dedicated lab, as you said, at, at Sheffield the Blast and Impact Lab. And I know fairly recently you've received, uh, is it £1.3 million in, in funding from the UK government to, mm-hmm. to upgrade that. So d- tell me about the lab and, um, and, and what you plan to do with that extra cash.
2: Yeah, so the, the lab itself, um, it started off as a, a firing range and a, and a mortar test facility in, in World War I. So it's out, out in the hills in, in the Peak District. It became a, a munitions store in World War II. Um, so there's lots of partially buried reinforced concrete bunkers. Uh, somebody, somebody who visited site said it looked like a brutalist Hobbiton, which is <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the best imagery that I can use because it, it's exactly that, these sort of buried concrete, uh, concrete bunkers um but those those bunkers are where we house our equipment um and where we have our specialist specialist tests um so we've we've got quite a lot of different capabilities out on site. um I'd say the the kind of standard explosive tests that we do uh, are using our test pad. So we'll we'll put a small mass of explosive out on our, our test arena, uh, and we'll we'll measure pressure at various points. We might film it with a high speed video camera. Um, that's kind of when we're looking at new types of explosive or different explosive shapes, those sorts of things, um, comparing them against you know what we know already about uh, about kind of regular explosives. But then we've got a lot more um, a lot more sort of world leading world class. Uh, equipment. So things like measuring explosives very, very close in. So we call this near field. Um, so just in terms of scale, we, we kind of test cricket ball sized explosives. Um, and our, our our testing apparatus, our near field testing apparatus allows us to go to within one or two uh, charge radii of that explosive. Um, so again, it's we're, we're really pushing the limits of what we can measure. It's very, uh, I mentioned earlier about the challenge. We, we have to design um, our, our equipment that can sample things at megahertz frequencies, but survive pressures in the order of, of magnitudes. Um, so yeah, we've got, we've got our near field testing rig. Uh, and that's, we've done a lot of work on that over the past decade or so. And this new um, investment that we've got from the Research Council is kind of centered around that as a capability, but bringing it up to date, uh, interfacing that with a lot more modern diagnostic tools. So we're uh, we're buying a couple of very high frame rate, ultra high speed video cameras that can go up to uh, perhaps 10, 10 million frames per second. That's 10 million hmm. frames per second. Um, we're, we're investing in a, a medium wave infrared camera. Uh, we've got flash X-ray. Um, the idea is that... Um, you, you get a lot of benefit from synchronizing these diagnostics. Um, so if you were to just measure, for example, pressure in isolation, there's only so much of a picture that you can paint with with that information, but it's when you couple it with things like high-speed video uh, and things like high-rate high temperature measurements that you can get a more complete description of what's actually going on in that physical process. How is the explosive detonating and, and uh, propagating outward and interacting with its surroundings?
1: So I'm actually originally from Sheffield. You, you probably couldn't tell with my accent because I mean, I've been away so long that <laughs> I lost it. But I know the Peak District quite well, and I, I just wondered—you know—you're blowing stuff up. Does that not interfere with, say, people out walking get a bit of a surprise, <laughs> or or farmers getting angry? Do you, do you get any of that? Uh,
2: occasionally, yeah. We um, uh, we have we have a very loud siren on site which warns people when we're when we're about to do an explosion. Uh, I think it was the old foghorn from an aircraft carrier and that sits on top of one of the bunkers <laughs> and, and and points out over to the valley but that's about as loud as the explosives um, itself some of some of the tests or, or quite a lot of the tests that we do are inside as well in indoors either in uh, a bunker or inside kind of a sealed mm-hmm. atmospheric chamber so it, it doesn't tend to be quite it doesn't tend to be that loud in, in fact, the, we call it the battle horn. The battle horn is probably the loudest thing on site. Um, but it does it does put a limit on the size of explosives that we can use. Um, so we generally don't go above sort of a kilogram of explosives, which means that when we're doing our testing, we often have to do things at scale. Uh, we have to use uh, scaling laws to, to shrink things down. We typically... Test at about a half scale, maybe a quarter scale, kind of that that size. Um, but we're we've just submitted a, a piece of work to the Research Council again that, that builds on the new lab upgrade, where we're going to look at hopefully um, evaluating blast loading on a citywide scale, mm-hmm. um, very much inspired by the, the goings on in, in Beirut and uh, things like the, the conflict in Ukraine, in order to better understand what happens when an explosive. Uh, event occurs in a built-up area, um, so we're, we're potentially going to go to maybe one to a hundred, maybe even one to a thousand scale with with that.
1: Let's come back to that a bit later. But one of the other big dangers over the past few decades has been improvised explosive devices, and these can be a lot smaller and perhaps a lot harder to predict. So with IEDs, is the main danger the explosion itself or the impact it has on the surrounding environment?
2: The issue that we're seeing nowadays is um, when, when explosives were uh, sort of a, a, a global scientific effort in sort of the, the 1940s, 1950s, post-World War II, development of the, the, the nuclear bomb, the nuclear arms race, the situation was very different. There, there were very, very large scale bombs with very very long durations very very long pressure pulses um, that were you know kilometers away from uh, from the structure in question at, at point um, and that's that's something that we generally call far field um there the that uh, whatever happened to generate that blast wave has happened, and it happened sufficiently long ago that we don't need to worry about it. All we need to worry about is the blast wave as, as it's traveling out and interacting with uh, and loading the structures in its path. But recently, the challenge has, has turned very different. Explosives have become much, much smaller. They're, they're person born, uh, suicide bombers, backpack bombs, uh, even, even vehicle bombs. Um, and now the challenge is, how do, we, how do we quantify the loading from these sorts of explosives when they are located very, very close to something? Uh, because when they're located very close to something, the actual explosion itself matters. Um, how, that, how that energy is released, the rate in which it's released. So therefore, you know, the chemical reactions that are going on, the, the, the material that makes up the explosive device is very important. What the explosive is surrounded in. Um, you know, if it's if it's surrounded in things that are going to mitigate the loading, uh, things that are going to take energy out, or in some situations, things that are going to put energy mm-hmm. in. Um, yeah, also I, I
1: saw one. Um, sorry, yeah, sorry to interrupt. You. I, I saw one study you had about um, buried bombs, so mm-hmm. IEDs in soils and how that can basically intensify the impacts. Um, yeah. what, what did you find with that?
2: Yeah. So with a with, with a free air explosion. the the energy can dissipate in all three dimensions. It can just expand freely outwards into the air. With a buried explosive, the mechanisms are very different because as that that pressure wave gets coupled into the soil and begins to travel outwards, when that pressure wave reaches the soil surface, it begins to lift the soil surface. And that, that kind of acts like a pressure valve release so that as the soil surface moves up, it gives this preferential path for the explosive detonation products to move upwards. So what you find in free air explosions, if the energy is directed sort of evenly in all dimensions surrounding the charge, for a buried explosive, the majority of the energy is directed upwards out of the soil surface and then presumably onto whatever it is that's that's triggered uh, the explosive device. And, And that behavior isn't consistent. That very much depends on the makeup of the soil itself um, so we did a lot of work that was measuring the spatial and temporal pressure distribution from from buried explosives um, specifically looking at how does the burial condition influence the the mechanism of loading that that's that's developed um, we found found some really interesting some really fundamental things as well because it's it's long been known that moisture content has a has a critical role. So if if the soil is dry or if the soil is wet, the the actual magnitude of the load will be very different. Um, and our results uh, our results allowed us to unpick why. So why that occurs? What is it about a wet soil that confines the explosion and directs it upwards more so than a than a dry soil? Um, there are certain things I can't say about that. Um, and the, and the work was sponsored by. Uh, UK MOD so um I, I think I'll probably I'll, pro- <laughs> I'll probably stop there just so I don't reveal anything that I shouldn't No, no do, it's, but, it's um,
1: understandable. yeah I suppose I was just wondering without going into you know, the exact kind of advice you, you gave to the MOD how can that information be useful to people in the military what can they do with it
2: so there's um there's probably there's probably two main sources of sources of impact uh, that this work has the first in terms of um Okay, now let's say three. Um, (laughs) I'll probably add one each time as well. Let's say three. So, the first one is in terms of um, kind of the direct findings and the direct policies that that would come from this. So, what we found is that if our work identified that perhaps soil A was uh, much more effective at increasing the loading from a buried explosive compared to soil B. Um, the, the 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 army could use that and say, well, if we've got two routes, one that goes over soil A and one that goes over soil B, in terms of risk management, if if there were landmines on on both of these routes, the risk from soil B is much lower because because of what we know from the work that the guys in Sheffield have done. Um, but there's also in terms of design of, of vehicles and and protective vehicles, um, if if you don't know what load it's going to be subjected to, then how can you possibly design something that's, that's efficient, something that um, uh, makes best use of material, or also something that will withstand that loading. And then the third one is, is from an academic sense. It also helps us point out to what the next challenge areas are and what the next avenues of research are. Um, so as an example, the, the work that we did Uh, for the buried explosives it actually revealed to us that we didn't understand what happened in a non-buried explosive so even in the simple case when there isn't sand there we still didn't understand that we still couldn't model it properly and we still couldn't predict the loading from it Um, and then of course what if it's not what if it's not sand as a confining material what if it's something like luggage if it's an explosive on an aircraft or or on a train or something like that Uh, what if somebody intentionally surrounds the explosive in Materials designed to react and, and combust and add energy to it, um, so it provides a lot of a steer to, to us and the rest of the academic community in terms of where that research could potentially go. Um, and I guess also, so I said, I said I'd add another one as promised. Uh, in terms of in terms of actual data, uh, we have now got very good, very reliable experimental data that we can use to validate numerical modeling approaches. Um, so we can we can. We've published a paper in the Proceedings of the Royal Society where we have included all of our experimental data as supplementary information. So anybody who's doing modelling in this can download that paper, grab that data and say, right, let's let's try and match my model up with this. And um, if it does, brilliant. I know that it's working. I know that it's capturing the physics correctly. If not, I know how to, or I know that I should change my model accordingly.
1: So in terms of those... Relationships with the different parties, so you, you guys are the scientists trying to understand what's going on you 've got the the MOD who are looking for you know firm practical advice, and then you have the the commercial engineering companies that would be designing things like tanks or protective clothing. H- how does that relationship work in terms of coming up with the research questions and, and the transfer of knowledge H- how, how closely do you work with these partners
2: um, so it 's something that we 're incentivized to do. Um, through through the university, the university is very keen on us being able to evidence impact of our work, um, and, and we're quite fortunate as a research group because those sorts of offshoots do come quite naturally. Um, uh, we've I'd, I'd say for the most part, our relationship with the UK MOD uh, through through DSTR, which is the sort of the research branch of, of the MOD, uh, they actually sponsor the head of our group. They they uh, pay for his time. So his post is a DSTL chair in blast protection engineering. And that gives us a very, very uh, established mechanism to, to impact with, with the likes of the UK MOD. Um, with, with industry, it's, it's something that we perhaps have to go out searching for a little bit more. Um, but there are various, various avenues. So for example, I'm, I'm currently involved in um, a project that's funded through a knowledge transfer partnership. And that's specifically set up so that academics can work with industry to get their ideas embedded at a particular company um, as, as a way of sort of maximising that that impact. So it kind of, it changes depending on the project and depending on what we found. But yeah, it is, it is something that we uh, are, are encouraged to do. You
1: touched upon earlier, you mentioned the explosion in Beirut uh, in 2020. So that was a you know, and that's much bigger scale explosion where lots of stored ammonium nitrate blew up in the port, mm-hmm. destroying basically that port area and killing more than 200 people. And you were one of the first groups to actually t- to look at the explosion and detail it and, and, and put some figures on the, the yield and the, the impact. So, yeah, t- tell me about how that study came about and what you found.
2: Beirut was unique because of the size of it, absolutely. Um, It was also unique because in terms of large-scale explosions, it was very well documented. The fire in the warehouse itself was was a large-scale fire, produced a lot of smoke, and it drew a lot of people to it who started filming on their smartphones. Um, So shortly after the event, there were lots and lots of videos posted to social media Showing the explosion, and that is basically how we constructed our our, our scientific study. We made use of this uh, this sort of citizen science data. Um, it, it initially came by just uh, conversations on on the WhatsApp group that we have uh, with with the blast group. We were sharing some of the videos and saying, you know, look at look at this, isn't it terrifying? But then somebody might have suggested, well, actually, um, you know, look at look at the delay time between the the explosion going off and. That, that signal um, arriving at the person who's filming it. And that um, is essentially what we did with, uh, with all the videos that we could find. So we, we looked through social media and we were able to, to find 16 videos in total, which, we could, uh, which A, could see the explosion and B, we were able to identify the position on, on Google Earth, Google Street View. Uh, and what we did from that is we went through each video systematically And if you know the the time of detonation and you know that the time that the blast wave arrives at the user and you know the distance, that gives you a a data point. It it gives you something that you can use to fill out a radius versus time relationship of of that blast wave. So that's what we did. Um, We we were able to get more than one data point per video because there were certain landmarks where we could visually see the blast wave passing over that, that point. So we ended up having 38 data points in total, which gave us um, a, a, a radius versus time or a distance versus time relationship and then what we did was we just did um, essentially just an error minimization task where we um, there are established semi empirical laws again which which were developed sort of off the back of World War two um, which make use of scaling which Essentially, say if if you know the size of your explosive, you can work out its arrival time at various distances. So we just we we correlated that with the observed data. So um, essentially, what size explosive would be required for the blast wave to have this radius time relationship? Um, and that's what we used to come up with our figure of about half a kiloton, five hundred tons of TNT. Um, and we, our, our first estimate, we refined this as, as time went on, but our first estimate we we had within 24 hours of the explosion, uh, and we did a did a press release through the university where we said, you know, this is this is the approximate yield of of the blast, and then we refined that for the for the paper that we published. Um, but that was that was really important because there was a lot of conversations going around about well, what, what is this? You know, what's happened? Was it an airstrike? Was it a nuke? Um, and 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 our work was very good at contextualising that discussion because we were able to say, "Look, it, it, the laws of physics say that this explosion was approximately half a kiloton yield." So that that help, helps sort of bound uh, bound the discussion. Um, we're we're kind of we're building on that as an idea as well going forward as to whether this could be kind of an automated forensics tool uh, if you're able to repeat this process if, if you can see an explosion and measure its arrival time at various points you can work out where it occurred and, and how big it was um, so we're already speaking with with interested parties about whether that's something that we could build on in the future um, so yes yeah, very, very it, it, a tragic event but there's fortunately a lot that can be learned from it from a engineering and, and science perspective
1: looking at the wider impacts of the research how can it help to make urban infrastructures more resilient to the impacts of explosions? You know, whether that's protecting a nuclear power station or minimising the impacts around a site that could be prone to blowing up.
2: One of the, the primary challenges, I would say, is that we still don't know how um, a blast wave propagates in a, in a complex environment like a cityscape it's a very very non-linear problem especially if you have lots of different reflecting surfaces and lots of different channels for the for the blast to be uh, to be directed through um i think one a, a sort of a conceptual model that i often use is talking about ripples in a pond so if you if you drop a stone in a pond and it's a perfectly flat pond with with nothing else in it that ripple will just propagate outwards until it reaches the edge of the pond but now imagine that the pond's got some islands, it's got, you know, it's got some reeds, it's got some ducks, I don't know. It's, it's got lots of obstructions. If you drop a pebble in the pond, the, the, the wave in the pond is going to propagate outwards, but it's going to meet obstacles, it's going to change, it's going to interact, it's going to, uh, it's going to superimpose with itself. There's going to be areas where it's, it's weakened and strengthened. So in order to, to come up with robust ways to uh, design infrastructure uh, sort of at a cityscape scale, we need to understand the loading first and foremost. Um, and, and that leans into sort of what we're doing with, with this, this funding grant application. We, we don't know where the hotspots are. We don't know where the, the risky areas are. We don't know if this explosion was to occur here. We don't know what damage would be. We don't know how chaotic it is and how sensitive it is to, to things like explosive size, shape, composition, those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a very, very sophisticated non-linear Mm -hmm. problem that that we're attempting to work on but i'd say that from from our observations of beirut the the critical areas are things like major infrastructure routes and hospitals Um, if if they are damaged then recovery efforts both short-term and long-term are are very very hampered Um, so we're hoping that the sorts of studies that we will be able to do if this uh if this grant application comes off will inform that sort of of way of thinking be able to do more robust risk- based studies on bits of critical infrastructure in the event of future explosions and cityscapes
1: okay Simon well good luck with developing that work and also good luck with upgrading the lab
2: thank you very much yes yeah, it's a uh, challenging work but it's <laughs> hopefully it has some real world impact so yeah we're really looking forward to making making some inroads.
1: I would say it's been a blast but I resist.
2: <laughs> sorry <laughs> nice <laughs>
0: That was Sam Rigby in conversation with Physics World's James Dacey. The British physicist, mathematician, engineer, inventor, and suffragette Hertha Ayrton was born in 1854 in the Portsea area of Portsmouth. She was responsible for developments in fields as diverse as electricity, mathematics, and the physics of liquids and gases and is widely regarded as one of the most prolific female inventors in scientific history. But unlike celebrated male contemporaries, such as Nikola Tesla, Thomas Edison, and Alexander Graham Bell, Ayrton's many accomplishments are often overlooked. In a feature article on the Physics World website, the Munich-based science writer Anita Chandran explores Ayrton's remarkable life, and describes how she forged a path for women in science and engineering. Chandran also explains why Ayrton's involvement in the women's suffrage movement only added to her rich legacy. Chandran looks at some of Ayrton's many inventions, including a device for measuring heartbeats, and the Ayrton flapper fan, which was used to push back the toxic gases used on First World War battlefields. You can find Chandran's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Hertha Ayrton, Pioneering Inventor and Suffragette. And we've also published two videos about Ayrton, one featuring Chandran and the other featuring the science historian Elizabeth Bruton at University College Dublin. You can find both under the headline, Hertha Ayrton, an advocate for interdisciplinarity. Also new on the website is an article about university degree inflation in the UK by Peter Main of King's College London. He points out that in 2011, 16% of graduates were awarded a first-class degree from a British university, and that has since risen to 29% in 2018. So have university students become much more studious in those seven years, or is something else afoot? Main sets out his suspicions and solutions in an article called Why We Need to Tackle University Degree Inflation. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Sam Rigby and James Dacey for joining me this week. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week when we explore how quantum computers could be used to solve some of the hardest problems in nuclear physics. But in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which looks at the legacy of the renowned Indian film director and polymath Satyajit Ray. Host Andrew Glester speaks to Ray's biographer, Andrew Robinson, and the biophysicist Momita Dasgupta. About how science influenced Ray's work and how the director has inspired both scientists and filmmakers. You can find all the episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World